The 1984 death of Christine Jessup and eventual wrongful conviction of Guy Paul Morin rocked the country. In a surprise announcement this month, police revealed they had identified Christine's killer. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Toronto Sun columnist Joe Warmington joins me by phone to talk about the historic case, who it's believed the killer is, and how police eventually solved this mystery. Don't forget, you can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Joe, we'll get to the latest developments in the case of the murder of Christine Jessup shortly. But for those who aren't familiar with the case, who was Christine Jessup? Well, she was a nine-year-old little girl living in Queensville, which is... 45 minutes northeast of Toronto, idyllic little Ontario town. And basically, she was just a regular kid. And we had a lot of things like that happen at that time. This was in 1984. Mm-hmm. She just disappeared. And it was one of those things that captured the hearts of the whole area and I think the whole country. And she was last seen kind of mid-October in 1984, but her body wasn't discovered for two, three months, correct? I think it was on New Year's Eve that she was located about maybe 40 kilometers away in a different area. And then there was a few months after that when on to the radar came Guy Paul Morin. And so before that, it was always a mystery about, you know, where was she? And then when they found her, then it was like, who did this? Mm -hmm. And then came the charges against Guy Paul. How did Guy Paul Morin come to be seen as a suspect? Was he in the area where she was last seen? Was he someone who knew the family? Yeah, the Jessup house was on one side of the cemetery, ironically, where Christine is now buried. And on the other side of the cemetery was the Morin family. So they were actually neighbors, but there was a cemetery in between the two houses. So they didn't know each other that well because of that. Mm -hmm. But he was a neighbor. And to answer your question, he came on the radar of the police because of Christine Jessup's mother, Janet, they were asking her about who are some of the quirky people around. And she sort of fingered Guy Paul as kind of being a little odd. And that, that's where it started. When you say a little odd, what was it about him? I think that it's a little unfair what happened to him in terms of being called odd. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he might be in that kind of, uh, you know, young Sheldon or, Shel- you know, on TV, kind of like a little bit different. And don't forget, we're going back to 1984, where things weren't as politically correct as they are today. Mm -hmm. He was 24 years old. He was living at home with his parents uh, along those lines. There was nothing really wrong with him at all, but he was just a little quiet and uh, probably pretty shy. He didn't have a girlfriend. You know, that was a stereotype that was very unfair, but it's what they built. And I never blamed the mother for it because she's trying to figure out who killed her little girl. Yeah. Ironically, where it ended up going, they never even saw the very person. They were so focused on Guy Paul Morin that they didn't see anybody else. Morin was arrested, charged, and tried, but he was initially acquitted, correct? And then on appeal, they overturned the acquittal and they took him to a new trial. You have to remember that this was before DNA was used in the courts. I think that came around in around 1989 in that area. Mm-hmm. This was in 1984. So they were going on things like hair fibers and that kind of thing. And uh, their case was built around that and also some drummed up jailhouse 
people, different kind of old school policing, if you will, stuff that they, they would never get away with today mm-hmm. and they wouldn't use today. Yeah. But there was some, some belief that there was a hair fiber on his jacket and maybe one in his car, but it was consistent with her hair and things like that. It was very flimsy stuff. That's why he was acquitted. But the problem was, Dave, that there was such a hunger to find out what happened when he went back for the second trial. You know, my contention is that the jury felt like it was almost instructed to get this right this time. Mm-hmm. They had seen so much media about it. You know, they say, well, they're not supposed to look at the media. Yeah, right. And how could you miss it? And so that's what happened is that they just wanted to settle the score. And they did it more on emotion. And it was all obviously well-meaning because this little girl was murdered. And, you know, obviously brutally sexually assaulted and all of that. So, you know, you want to exact a price for that. And, you know, unfortunately, Guy Paul Morin was caught in the middle of this thing. But it wasn't until the DNA kind of came along where things started to change for him. If it wasn't for that, he'd still be probably in jail for that. So he was retried in 1992 at the time of one of the longest murder trials in Canadian history. And then it was, I think, three years after that before he was exonerated, right? But at more than a decade after her death, police were essentially at square one. In the mid-90s, 25 years ago, were there people with police who stayed on this case? Well, there's been three police departments on this case. started with York Regional Police, and then it was transferred back to Durham Police because her body, I think, was found in Durham. And then obviously Toronto Police came into it when the thing was so messed up. I came into this case around the second trial. I've been at the Toronto Sun since 1991. Mm-hmm. So I do remember bits of it, but I wasn't personally involved in it really until Guy Paul was let out of prison when they decided to do the review in the Ontario Supreme Court. The first time that I met him was after he was let out of jail. The Toronto Star had a whole ballroom and they had rented it for a lunch with his family and everything. And they kind of locked it down. Different era, you know, you'd never get away with that now. <laughs> and uh, I waited outside and they wouldn't let me in. But I, I kind of talked to him on the way in on that. And then I followed him out and tried to figure out where he was going. We lost track of him myself and a photographer named Alex Yurcevic. And we went out to Queensville. We, to his house and we talked to his dad Alphonse who's now dead and he says to us he's off with some girl and he says I don't like it at all you know he's in enough trouble as it is we're trying to get him out of trouble hmm. he runs off with some girl I said well where is she he gives us the address and now uh, you wouldn't expect the father to give us the address of where Paul was out of prison but we went there we knocked on the door he opened the door there was all these party balloons and this, uh, you know, very pretty young woman, maybe 23 or something. And he was, by that stage, I think he was a little older, maybe 30 or something. And we got this great picture. And the front page of the Toronto Sun said, Christine's mom weeps while more in parties. So you get a sense of where the Toronto Sun was at. The Toronto Star was more interested in his innocence than we were. But I got a call from Alphonse Moran the next day. And he said, I want to thank you for, I thought he was going to be mad at me for doing that, but... He wanted that story out there because he wanted to set Paul straight and get him back home, which he, Paul did come back home because the judge could easily throw him back in the can. Yeah, And that's where we got to know Paul. And the more I got to know him, the more I thought, you know what, there's just no way this guy did this. He's just too nice a guy. And, you know, and we started to get to know him and write stories on him. And over the years, I remember when he went into, after he got a settlement, which we're going to come to, but he called me 
to say, look, I just want to thank you, and I'm kind of saying goodbye. I, after this, I'm not going to do any more media interviews. You know, you're kind of not friends. Like, you know, you're friendly, but, like, I need to, I need to get a life, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's done that. He's done that. He's gone off, and he's got married and had a family, and I'm really happy for him. I mean, that front page does speak to kind of what the case was. I can understand why if you were arrested, tried twice, convicted once of murder and sexually assaulting a nine-year-old girl, and then to be let out of prison and eventually exonerated, it may not have looked great on him to be celebrating at that point. But at the same time, I'm sure you or I, if we were in that position, we might wind up (laughs) like going out and, and celebrating, even if the family is still looking for answers. That front page does speak to what that case was about at that point. It was the the family still left with no closure and no justice in the death of their daughter. At the same time, someone who probably went through an awful ordeal kind of has this weight lifted off him and feels like celebrating, right? Yeah, he didn't he didn't have the, f- the full weight of it lifted off of him yet. Okay. And that was the problem. Yeah. He was let out of prison. I think that the woman was excited. And, you know, she was excited because he was in the news and he met her along the way. But at the same time, the balloons and all that stuff, that saved his life by us doing that picture because it scared him straight, if you will. And he went home and he realized this is serious business. And that's what his father wanted him to realize. Mm-hmm. You know, his mom's still alive. She's 98. Uh, her name is Ida. She chased us off that property more than once. She was in a, like a pit bull. Like she was a tough customer. But I always felt that I really liked her. I liked Alphonse a lot. I liked all of Paul's brothers and sisters and stuff. And they were a nice family. And they had this inflicted upon them just because they happened to live there. And because the police decided that they were going to nail this guy and they didn't want to hear anything else. And that's what happened. You know, you can ask me about the police too, because I talked to them a lot as well, but this is not going to go down, you know, one of the shining moments of the police service. That's for sure. As you mentioned, he was let out of jail on release while they were reviewing the case. Eventually, he was exonerated. Was it the DNA evidence that finally cleared him? It said, well, okay, this definitely wasn't him. And how long after he was convicted was he exonerated? You know, some of the timeline stuff, it's not really my forte. But somewhere in there, you had the conviction, and then they were working on the DNA. They went down to Boston with the DNA, and they came back and... It wasn't his DNA, although the way they did DNA, Dave, in those days was a lot different than they do it today. So when I did talk to Bernie Fitzpatrick, the detective, he told me that as far as he was concerned, the DNA did not vindicate him fully because he said it was like you had 10 lights, nine of which were green and one was amber. Mm -hmm. And that was all that they used. The problem the court had was that they were starting to put people in prison for DNA. So that when you presented somebody that didn't come across with a full 10 out of 10, if you will, it was kind of hard to put them in prison. Justice Dubbin, Charles Dubbin, who did the Ben Johnson inquiry, he was head of the appeals court, the three-judge panel. I was in that courtroom. And a lot of people, I remember Lauren Honickman, who was a, in those days a law student. He's now a lawyer, a good lawyer. He said that Dubbin was such a stubborn guy that he's liable to say, we're not going to let uh, Moran out until we review all of this thing. But he basically exonerated him right there. And that was it. And I'll never forget when Paul came out of the courtroom and then that Kirk Macon, who wrote the book Red Rum, The Innocent, they kind of embraced. And because Kirk Macon, again, I don't know Kirk Macon. I just met him 
in, the, in these contexts, but that was a hell of a book. And, and, you know, he made a big difference there. And that was a moment those guys shared together. And I was standing right there. So we're at this point, many years after Christine Jessup was murdered, Paul Moran exonerated. He's let out of prison. He eventually receives a settlement from the Ontario government for wrongful conviction, correct? That's correct. Other than the DNA evidence, did police have any leads at the time in the death or was it essentially a trail gone cold? No, they had different scenarios that they pursued. But now that they were into the DNA world, that's pretty well what they do is they basically DNA people that they think could be there. So they were running through their box to see what names would come up and then they would do DNA on it. You know, they weren't too open with what they were doing, but it's mind boggling to me that I mean, Calvin Hoover didn't come up to DNA while he was still alive, but for some reason he didn't. To catch listeners up, in October 2020, media get a surprise press release relating to an update in the Christine Jessup case, and at a presser, they identified who they felt was the killer. And as you mentioned, it's a man by the name of Calvin Hoover, who, as far as you know, wasn't on anyone's radar, correct? Right. And when we got the release there last week, I started phoning everybody I knew. James Lockyer, the lawyer who helped get Moran out of it, people like that. And they, everyone was saying that whoever they had was somebody who was not on the radar, at least on our radar. I'd never heard the name or seen the face before. So when I started hearing that this guy, you know, had been in the house the day before and helped with the search, had been at her wake and funeral, he and his wife had been over for barbecues, I started thinking, well, wait a minute now. Excuse me, but hello. Mm-hmm. Why were you so focused on this guy who didn't know her, who happened to live, you know, on the other side of the cemetery? Instead of the guy who did know her and her father and mother and was in her house. It didn't make sense to me, but it happened. It's what tunnel vision does. You know, we do it in stories too. You see it in politics. It doesn't happen in policing today. And I know a lot of police officers listen to your podcast because the last time I was on, I had a lot of comments about it. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell you, they're the first to tell you that they learn from this. You know, it's not about ego. It's not about what you think you know. It's about what you can prove. Yeah. They don't do it like that anymore, and they bring more people in to look at cases. In those days, those those two guys, Shepard and Fitzpatrick, it was kind of their case, and they, they took it all the way through. And there were a lot of holes, and look, they were good guys, too. I mean, they thought they were doing something right. The problem was that a guy paid for it with sort of the family, and also this guy, Hoover, was on the loose for a long time as well because of these, uh, you know, basically dropping the ball. As you say, that Hoover knew the family, he was involved in the search, he had been over to their house before. What else do we know about him? Does he have another criminal record? Has he been convicted of any other sexual offenses in the intervening 36 years? Not that I've been able to find. And there's no DNA involved in any other case that we've been able to find. So this was the only match. But there are a lot of missing children. Mm-hmm. It's possible. I mean, anything's possible. Yeah, he was uh, convicted of like a drunk driving kind of thing, or at least uh, before the courts on it. And that's it. And uh, he has two kids, his wife, Heather. But for the most part, it sounds like this happened and he was out there and he got away with it. All the way up until 2015 when, you know, there's different versions of it. But Ken Jessup, 
Christine Jessup's brother told me that what the police told him is that they were doing a routine knock on the door and he talked to the officers and I guess he must have, because he had this hanging over him in the back of his memory and obviously conscience, he just hanged himself. Wow. But they weren't on to him yet. In fact, they weren't on to him until it came back with the profile from the genealogy people in the States. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, the autopsy had taken his blood, and that was how they were able to determine the DNA tracing. It wasn't a DNA match, but, you know, that family tracing, if you will. Yeah. He killed himself. He might have thought they were been hearing footsteps, but to be honest with you, they weren't on to him. Mm -hmm. Chris Doucette, the great uh, police reporter, told me that, and I don't want to contradict what Ken told me, but Chris said he was told that they were talking to him about a fraud investigation. It wasn't about the thing with Christine Jessup. But, you know, the police, when they're doing things, they may tell you one thing, and they may be doing something completely different. They may not want to spook him. Hey, we're talking about a fraud investigation, just to see where he's at, you know, Mm -hmm. and see how he reacts. So whatever it was, whatever he felt, he hanged himself over it. It's too bad he did because it would have been really something if we could have caught him while he's alive and had a trial. What has Christine's family said about the identification of Hoover as the likely killer? Do they feel a sense of closure or the fact that he hanged himself five years ago kind of leaves that one lingering piece of it for them? I think that they feel it's closure and I think they're ready to move on from it. I think that they're satisfied that it was Calvin Hoover. Obviously, it'd be better to have a trial, but they also, you know, they're living with the results of it. Don't forget, it's been 36 years since this happened. Having said that, you know, I don't understand why they didn't think of him earlier when Heather, the wife, was friends with them and things like that. So I don't understand that part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you think you want to run everybody down. I think they just all thought it was Guy Paul Moran and they wanted it to be him. And what about Guy Paul Moran? Has he spoken since this announcement or through his lawyer? Has there been a statement? Yeah, he put out a statement and he, you know, he was very gracious in it, uh, took the high road. He's a class kid. I mean, he's not a kid now. He's 59. This was not right what happened to him. He just said that he's glad that they found peace. But I did talk to his sister, Denise. I met her at the time. Mm -hmm. And she talked on behalf of the mother. You know, they're all so pleased, but there's a lot of hurt there. I mean, this ruined a lot of people's lives. Even the sister, Denise, like she put her life savings into his legal fees and she never got that money back. Whatever Paul got apparently was mostly swallowed up by lawyers. Yeah. So it's not like he got, you know, a big windfall and he's living high. Mm -hmm. I heard it wasn't very much when it was all said and done. And whatever it was, it would never be enough for what they put him through. What about police in this case? The use of genetic genealogy is becoming more common in cases like this. You look at the Golden State Killer case in the United States. Have police here said they're working any other cases using this method? And how did they feel to finally make up for the mistakes that were made on this case to identify a killer here? Well, Toronto police never made any mistakes on it. So they saved the day. Fair point. They feel really satisfied with it. I mean, they may have made a mistake here or there, but they didn't make the big mistake. That was Durham. Yeah, I think they feel really good about it and they do have other cases with it. But I, I you know, on this genealogy approach, it's important to, to note that it hasn't been tested in court yet. This is a very good investigative tool mm-hmm. to identify somebody that you can now investigate. And if they're dead, then you can throw and say, okay, there's your murderer, as what happened here with Calvin Hoover. Or if they're alive, often they're 
older, like I think some of the cases we hear about, and the person's, you know, 90 years old in a nursing home or something, and they might be able to get a confession of somebody like that. So it's effective that way. It hasn't been tested, as far as I know, inside of a courtroom. I think it should be. It'd be interesting when they do get an opportunity to do that, when they get somebody they can take to the courts to see what does happen. And if a jury does accept this evidence, Mm -hmm. I think that's coming. And I bet you it's going to come this year or very soon. Now, what about the police who were involved in this case, both through the initial investigation and the subsequent investigations after Moran's exoneration? Where are they at now? Well, that's an excellent question. And the Toronto police officer, the, the guy that sort of sent the sample down, uh, his name is Stacy Gallant. He's now with Garda World. He was a detective sergeant in homicide in the cold squad. And he was the guy looking for new technologies, trying to solve this. And this was pretty well the last thing he did in his 31 years of policing with Toronto police. Now, the other guys, I feel really, in a way, sorry for. Because I knew them both. John Shepard's one. He was an inspector and detective sergeant, Bernie Fitzpatrick. He lives in Newfoundland. And he used to talk freely about this case. You could call him and even get him on your show back in the day. And he would tell you that they still thought it was Paul Moran. I don't know what he thinks now because he's not picking the phone up. It must be awfully difficult for him and his ego to know that they really did screw this up. And he hasn't apologized for it that I've seen. You know, I've reached out to him numbers of times. But, you know, again, it's a high wire act, what they do, and even what we do. Mm-hmm. We make mistakes, and when we make them, they're loud. In this case, they also involve people's liberty and their, their lives. Yeah. But, it, you know, we've learned from it, and I don't know what, you know, there's anything you can do. I mean, this guy, Fitzpatrick, he might be 80 years old now. So I do feel for him. A lot of people don't, but I know the police tried really hard. Like they, you know, they cared a lot about Christine and what happened to her. And, you know, it just makes you wonder though, how many people, like you think of the big three M's, Donald Marshall and David Milgard and obviously Guy Pomeroy, and there's three that all served, you know, between those three guys, like 30 years in prison and they didn't do it. And who else is sitting in prison somewhere that didn't do it? Thanks for your time, Joe. Good to be with you. All the best. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Joe Warmington. More from him at torontosun.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.